0: Section 9 of Tom Jones, being Book 3, Chapters 4, 5, and 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding Book 3, Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 4 Containing a necessary apology for the author, and a childish incident which perhaps requires an apology likewise. Before I proceed farther, I shall beg leave to obviate some misconstructions into which the zeal of some few readers may lead them, for I would not willingly give offence to any, especially to men who are warm in the cause of virtue or religion. I hope, therefore, no man will, by the grossest misunderstanding or perversion of my meaning, misrepresent me as endeavouring to cast any ridicule on the greatest perfections of human nature, and which do, indeed, alone purify and ennoble the heart of man, and raise him above the brute creation. This, reader, I will venture to say, and by how much the better man you are yourself, by so much the more will you be inclined to believe me, that i would rather have buried the sentiments of these two persons in eternal oblivion than have done any injury to either of these glorious causes on the contrary it is with a view to their service that i have taken upon me to record the lives and actions of two of their false and pretended champions A treacherous friend is the most dangerous enemy, and I will say boldly that both religion and virtue have received more real discredit from hypocrites than the wittiest profligates or infidels could ever cast upon them. Nay, father, as these two in their purity are rightly called the bands of civil society, and are indeed the greatest of blessings, so when poisoned and corrupted with fraud, pretense, and affectation, They have become the worst of civil curses, and have enabled men to perpetrate the most cruel mischiefs to their own species. Indeed, I doubt not but this ridicule will in general be allowed. My chief apprehension is, as many true and just sentiments often came from the mouths of these persons, lest the whole should be taken together, and I should be conceived to ridicule all alike. Now the reader will be pleased to consider that, as neither of these men were fools, they could not be supposed to have holden none but wrong principles, and to have uttered nothing but absurdities. What injustice, therefore, must I have done to these characters, had I selected only what was bad, and how horribly wretched and maimed must their arguments have appeared? Upon the whole it is not religion or virtue, but the want of them which is here exposed had not thwackham too much neglected virtue and square religion, in the composition of their several systems, and had not both utterly discarded all natural goodness of heart, they had never been represented as the objects of derision in this history, in which we will now proceed. In this matter, then, which put an end to the debate mentioned in the last chapter, was no other than a quarrel between Master Bliffill and Tom Jones, the consequence of which had been a bloody nose to the former, for though Master Bliffill, notwithstanding he was the younger, was in size above the other's match, yet Tom was much his superior at the noble art of boxing. Tom, however, cautiously avoided all engagements with that youth, for besides that Tommy Jones was an inoffensive lad amidst all his roguery, and really loved Bliffill, Mr. Thwackham, being always the second of the latter would have been sufficient to deter him. But well says a certain author, no man is wise at all hours. It is therefore no wonder that a boy is not so. A difference arising at play between the two lads, Master Blifil called Tom a beggarly bastard. Upon which the latter, who was somewhat passionate in his disposition, immediately caused that phenomenon in the face of the former, which we have above remembered. Master Bliffill now, with his blood running from his nose, and the tears galloping after from his eyes, appeared before his uncle and the tremendous Thwackham, in which court an indictment of assault, battery, and wounding was instantly preferred against Tom, who, in his excuse, only pleaded the provocation, which was indeed all the matter that Master Bliffill had omitted. It is indeed possible that this circumstance might have escaped his memory, for, in his reply, he positively insisted that he had made use of no such appellation, adding, "'Heaven forbid such naughty words should ever come out of his mouth!' Tom, though against all form of law, rejoined in affirmance of the words, upon which Master Bliffel said, "'It is no wonder. Those who will tell one fib will hardly stick at another.' "'If I had told my master such a wicked fib as you have done, "'I should be ashamed to show my face.' "'What fib, child?' cries Thwackham, pretty eagerly. "'Why, he told you that nobody was with him a-shooting "'when he killed the partridge. "'But he knows.' "'Here he burst into a flood of tears. "'Yes, he knows, for he confessed it to me "'that Black George the gamekeeper was there. "'Nay,' he said, "'Yes, you did. "'Deny it if you can.' "'that you would not have confessed the truth, "'though Master had cut you to pieces.' "'At this the fire flashed from Thwackum's eyes, "'and he cried out in triumph, hole! this is your mistaken notion of honour! "'This is the boy who was not to be whipped again!' "'But Mr. Allworthy, with a more gentle aspect, "'turned towards the lad and said, "'Is this true, child? "'How came you to persist so obstinately in a falsehood?' "'Tom said,' He scorned a lie as much as any one, but he thought his honour engaged him to act as he did, for he had promised the poor fellow to conceal him, which, he said, he thought himself farther obliged to, as the gamekeeper had begged him not to go into the gentleman's manor, and had at last gone himself in compliance with his persuasions. He said this was the whole truth of the matter, and he would take his oath of it and concluded with very passionately begging Mr. Allworthy to have compassion on the poor fellow's family, especially as he himself had been only guilty, and the other had been very difficultly prevailed on to do what he did. Indeed, sir, said he, it could hardly be called a lie that I told, for the poor fellow was entirely innocent of the whole matter. I should have gone alone after the birds. Nay, I did go at first, and he only followed me to prevent more mischief.' Do, pray, sir, let me be punished, take my little horse away again, but, pray, sir, forgive poor George. Mr. Alworthy hesitated a few moments, and then dismissed the boys, advising them to live more friendly and peaceably together. End of Chapter 4 Chapter 5 The Opinions of the Divine and the Philosopher Concerning the Two Boys, With Some Reasons for Their Opinions and Other Matters it is probable that by disclosing this secret, which had been communicated in the utmost confidence to him, young Blifil preserved his companion from a good lashing, for the offence of the bloody nose would have been of itself sufficient cause for Thwackham to have proceeded to correction, but now this was totally absorbed in the consideration of the other matter, and with regard to this Mr. Allworthy declared privately he thought the boy deserved reward rather than punishment so that Thwackham's hand was withheld by a general pardon. Thwackham, whose meditations were full of birch, exclaimed against this weak, and as he said he would venture to call it, wicked lenity. To remit the punishment of such crimes was, he said, to encourage them. He enlarged much on the correction of children, and quoted many texts from Solomon and others, which, being found in so many other books, shall not be found here. He then applied himself to the vice of lying, on which head he was altogether as learned as he had been on the other. Square said he had been endeavouring to reconcile the behaviour of Tom with his idea of perfect virtue, but could not. He owned there was something which at first sight appeared like fortitude in the action, but as fortitude was a virtue, and falsehood a vice, they could by no means agree or unite together he added that as this was in some measure to confound virtue and vice it might be worth mr thwackham's consideration whether a larger castigation might be laid on upon that account as both these learned men concurred in censuring jones so were they no less unanimous in applauding master blifil to bring truth to light was by the parson asserted to be the duty of every religious man and by the philosopher this was declared to be highly conformable with the rule of right, and the eternal and unalterable fitness of things. All this, however, weighed very little with Mr. Allworthy. He could not be prevailed on to sign the warrant for the execution of Jones. There was something within his own breast, with which the invincible fidelity which that youth had preserved, corresponded much better than it had done with the religion of Thwackham, or with the virtue of Square." he therefore strictly ordered the former of these gentlemen to abstain from laying violent hands on tom for what had passed the pedagogue was obliged to obey those orders but not without great reluctance and frequent mutterings that the boy would be certainly spoiled towards the gamekeeper the good man behaved with more severity he presently summoned that poor fellow before him and after many bitter remonstrances paid him his wages and dismissed him from his service. For Mr. Allworthy rightly observed that there was great difference between being guilty of a falsehood to excuse yourself and to excuse another. He likewise urged, as the principal motive to his inflexible severity against this man, that he had basely suffered Tom Jones to undergo so heavy a punishment for his sake whereas he ought to have prevented it by making the discovery himself when this story became public many people differed from square and thwackham in judging the conduct of the two lads on the occasion master blifil was generally called a sneaking rascal a poor-spirited wretch with other epithets of the like kind whilst tom was honoured with the appellations of a brave lad a jolly dog and an honest fellow Indeed, his behaviour to Black George much ingratiated him with all the servants, for though that fellow was before universally disliked, yet he was no sooner turned away than he was as universally pitied, and the friendship and gallantry of Tom Jones was celebrated by them all with the highest applause, and they condemned Master Blifil as openly as they durst without incurring the danger of offending his mother. For all this, however, poor Tom smarted in the flesh, for though thwackham had been inhibited to exercise his arm on the foregoing account yet as the proverb says it is easy to find a stick etc so was it easy to find a rod and indeed the not being able to find one was the only thing which could have kept thwackham any long time from chastising poor jones had the bare delight in the sport been the only inducement to the pedagogue it is probable master blifil would likewise have had his share but though mr allworthy had given him frequent orders to make no difference between the lads yet was thwackham altogether as kind and gentle to this youth as he was harsh nay even barbarous to the other to say the truth blifil had greatly gained his master's affections partly by the profound respect he always showed his person but much more by the decent reverence with which he received his doctrine for he had got by heart and frequently repeated his phrases and maintained all his master's religious principles with a zeal which was surprising in one so young, and which greatly endeared him to the worthy preceptor. Tom Jones, on the other hand, was not only deficient in outward tokens of respect, often forgetting to pull off his hat or to bow at his master's approach, but was altogether as unmindful both of his master's precepts and example. He was indeed a thoughtless, giddy youth, with little sobriety in his manners and less in his countenance, and would often very impudently and indecently laugh at his companion for his serious behaviour. Mr. Square had the same reason for his preference of the former lad, for Tom Jones showed no more respect to the learned discourses which this gentleman would sometimes throw away upon him than to those of Thwackham. He once ventured to make a jest of the rule of right, and at another time said he believed there was no rule in the world capable of making such a man as his father, for so Mr. Allworthy suffered himself to be called. Master Bliffill, on the contrary, had address enough at sixteen to recommend himself at one and the same time to both these opposites. With one he was all religion, with the other he was all virtue, and when both were present he was profoundly silent, which both interpreted in his favour and their own nor was Blifil contented with flattering both these gentlemen to their faces. He took frequent occasions of praising them behind their backs to all worthy, before whom, when they were alone together, and when his uncle commended any religious or virtuous sentiment, for many such came constantly from him, he seldom failed to ascribe it to the good instructions he had received from either Thwackham or Square, for he knew his uncle repeated all such compliments to the persons for whose use they were meant, and he found by experience the great impressions which they made on the philosopher, as well as on the divine, for, to say the truth, there is no kind of flattery so irresistible as this at second hand. The young gentleman, moreover, soon perceived how extremely grateful all those panegyrics on his instructors were to Mr. Allworthy himself as they so loudly resounded the praise of that singular plan of education which he had laid down. For this worthy man, having observed the imperfect institution of our public schools, and the many vices which boys were there liable to learn, had resolved to educate his nephew, as well as the other lad, whom he had in a manner adopted, in his own house, where he thought their morals would escape all that danger of being corrupted, to which they would be unavoidably exposed in any public school or university. Having therefore determined to commit these boys to the tuition of a private tutor, Mr. Thwackham was recommended to him for that office, by a very particular friend, of whose understanding Mr. Alworthy had a great opinion, and in whose integrity he placed much confidence. This Thwackham was fellow of a college where he almost entirely resided, and had a great reputation for learning, religion, and sobriety of manners, and these were doubtless the qualifications by which Mr. Allworthy's friend had been induced to recommend him, though indeed this friend had some obligations to Thwackham's family, who were the most considerable persons in a borough which that gentleman represented in Parliament. Wackham, at his first arrival, was extremely agreeable to Allworthy, and indeed he perfectly answered the character which had been given of him. Upon longer acquaintance, however, and more intimate conversation, this worthy man saw infirmities in the tutor which he could have wished him to have been without, though, as those seemed greatly overbalanced by his good qualities, they did not incline Mr. Allworthy to part with him nor would they indeed have justified such a proceeding for the reader is greatly mistaken if he conceives that thwackham appeared to mr allworthy in the same light as he doth to him in this history and he is as much deceived if he imagines that the most intimate acquaintance which he himself could have had with that divine would have informed him of those things which we from our inspiration are enabled to open and discover of readers who from such conceits as these condemn the wisdom or penetration of mr allworthy i shall not scruple to say that they make a very bad and ungrateful use of that knowledge which we have communicated to them these apparent errors in the doctrine of thwackham served greatly to palliate the contrary errors in that of square which our good man no less saw and condemned He thought, indeed, that the different exuberances of these gentlemen would correct their different imperfections, and that from both, especially with his assistance, the two lads would derive sufficient precepts of true religion and virtue. If the event happened contrary to his expectations, this possibly proceeded from some fault in the plan itself, which the reader hath my leave to discover, if he can for we do not pretend to introduce any infallible characters into this history, where we hope nothing will be found which hath never yet been seen in human nature. To return, therefore, the reader will not, I think, wonder that the different behaviour of the two lads above commemorated produced the different effects, of which he hath already seen some instance, and besides this there was another reason for the conduct of the philosopher and the pedagogue, but this being matter of great importance we shall reveal it in the next chapter end of chapter 5 chapter 6 containing a better reason still for the before mentioned opinions It is to be known, then, that those two learned personages, who have lately made a considerable figure on the theatre of this history, had, from their first arrival at Mr. Allworthy's house, taken so great an affection, the one to his virtue, the other to his religion, that they had meditated the closest alliance with him. For this purpose they had cast their eyes on that fair widow, whom, though we have not for some time made any mention of her, the reader, we trust, hath not forgot. Mrs. Blifil was indeed the object to which they both aspired. It may seem remarkable that of four persons whom we have commemorated at Mr. Allworthy's house, three of them should fix their inclinations on a lady who was never greatly celebrated for her beauty, and who was, moreover, now a little descended into the vale of years. But in reality bosom friends and intimate acquaintance, have a kind of natural propensity to particular females at the house of a friend, viz. to his grandmother, mother, sister, daughter, aunt, niece, and cousin, when they are rich, and to his wife, sister, daughter, niece, cousin, mistress, or servant maid, if they should be handsome. We would not, however, have our reader imagine that persons of such characters as were supported by thwackham and Square, would undertake a matter of this kind which hath been a little censured by some rigid moralists before they had thoroughly examined it and considered whether it was as shakespeare phrases it stuff or the conscience or no thwackham was encouraged to the undertaking by reflecting that to court your neighbour's sister is nowhere forbidden and he knew it was a rule in the construction of all laws that expressum facit caesare tacitum the sense of which is When a lawgiver sets down plainly his whole meaning, we are prevented from making him mean what we please ourselves. As some instances of women, therefore, are mentioned in the divine law, which forbids us to covet our neighbour's goods, and that of a sister omitted, he concluded it to be lawful. And as to Square, who was in his person what is called a jolly fellow, or a widow's man, he easily reconciled his choice to the eternal fitness of things now as both these gentlemen were industrious in taking every opportunity of recommending themselves to the widow they apprehended one certain method was by giving her son the constant preference to the other lad and as they conceived the kindness and affection which mr allworthy showed the latter must be highly disagreeable to her they doubted not but the laying hold on all occasions to degrade and vilify him would be highly pleasing to her who as she hated the boy must love all those who did him any hurt in this thwackum had the advantage for while square could only scarify the poor lad's reputation he could flay his skin and, indeed, he considered every lash he gave him as a compliment paid to his mistress, so that he could, with the utmost propriety, repeat this old flogging line, Castigo te non quod odio habiam, said quod amem. I chastise thee not out of hatred, but out of love. And this, indeed, he often had in his mouth, or rather, according to the old phrase, never more properly applied, at his fingers' ends. For this reason, principally, the two gentlemen concurred, as we have seen above, in their opinion concerning the two lads, this being indeed almost the only instance of their concurring on any point, for beside the difference of their principles they had both long ago strongly suspected each other's design, and hated one another with no little degree of inveteracy. This mutual animosity was a good deal increased by their alternate successes, for Mrs. Bliffill knew what they would be at long before they imagined it, or indeed intended she should, for they proceeded with great caution, lest she should be offended, and acquaint Mr. Allworthy. But they had no reason for any such fear. She was well enough pleased with a passion of which she intended none should have any fruits but herself, and the only fruits she designed for herself were flattery and courtship for which purpose she soothed them by turns, and a long time equally. She was indeed rather inclined to favour the parson's principles, but Square's person was more agreeable to her eye, for he was a comely man, whereas the pedagogue did in countenance very nearly resemble that gentleman who, in the harlot's progress, is seen correcting the ladies in Bridewell. Whether Mrs. Bliffill had been surfeited with the sweets of marriage, or disgusted by its bitters, or from what other cause it proceeded, I will not determine, but she could never be brought to listen to any second proposals. However, she at last conversed with Square with such a degree of intimacy, that malicious tongues began to whisper things of her to which, as well as for the sake of the lady, as that they were highly disagreeable to the rule of right and the fitness of things, we will give no credit, and therefore shall not blot our paper with them. The pedagogue, tis certain, whipped on, without getting a step nearer to his journey's end. Indeed he had committed a great error, and that Square discovered much sooner than himself. Mrs. Bliffill, as perhaps the reader may have formerly guessed, was not over and above pleased with the behaviour of her husband. Nay, to be honest, she absolutely hated him, till his death at last a little reconciled him to her affections. It will not be therefore greatly wondered at if she had not the most violent regard to the offspring she had by him, and in fact she had so little of this regard that in his infancy she seldom saw her son, or took any notice of him, and hence she acquiesced, after a little reluctance, in all the favours which Mr. Allworthy showered on the foundling, whom the good man called his own boy, and in all things put on an entire equality with Master Bliffill. This acquiescence in Mrs. Bliffill was considered by the neighbours and by the family as a mark of her condescension to her brother's humour, and she was imagined by all others, as well as Thwackham and Square, "'to hate the foundling in her heart. "'Nay, the more civility she showed him, "'the more they conceived she detested him, "'and the surer scheme she was laying for his ruin, "'for as they thought it her interest to hate him, "'it was very difficult for her to persuade them she did not. Thwackum was the more confirmed in his opinion, "'as she had more than once slyly caused him to whip Tom Jones, "'when Mr. Allworthy, who was an enemy to this exercise, "'was abroad.' whereas she had never given any such orders concerning young Blithill, and this had likewise imposed upon Square. In reality, though she certainly hated her own son, of which, however monstrous it appears, I am assured she is not a singular instance, she appeared, notwithstanding all her outward compliance, to be, in her heart, sufficiently displeased with all the favour shown by Mr. Allworthy to the foundling, she frequently complained of this behind her brother's back, and very sharply censured him for it, both to Thwackham and Square. Nay, she would throw it in the teeth of Allworthy himself, when a little quarrel, or miff, as it is vulgarly called, arose between them. However, when Tom grew up, and gave tokens of that gallantry of temper which greatly recommends men to women, this disinclination, which she had discovered to him when a child, by degrees abated, and at last she so evidently demonstrated her affection to him to be much stronger than what she bore her own son, that it was impossible to mistake her any longer. She was so desirous of often seeing him, and discovered such satisfaction and delight in his company, that before he was eighteen years old he was become a rival to both Square and Thwackham, and, what is worse, the whole country began to talk as loudly of her inclination to Tom, As they had before done of that which she had shown to Square, on which account the philosopher conceived the most implacable hatred for our poor hero. Chapter six.